Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm joined by Professor Anita Hill. Anita is also an author, lawyer, and the host of a new podcast called Getting Even with Anita Hill. The show, made by Pushkin Industries, is about equality and what it takes to get there. Every Friday, she talks with people on the front lines of improving our imperfect world. Her most recent episodes include conversations with Don Hudson, CEO of the Academy of Motion Pictures, and Kimberly Crenshaw, the legal scholar that coined the terms intersectionality and critical race theory. You can find Getting Even with Anita Hill on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you do your listening. It is well worth checking out if you haven't already. Now, when it comes to Anita Hill, I think all of us have an interpretation of what happened during the confirmation hearing of Justice Clarence Thomas. But here's an abbreviated history. On October 11th, 1991, Hill, who was then 35, accused Judge Thomas of sexual harassment. First, while working with him at the Department of Education, and then later at the EEOC. She detailed such claims before an all-white, all-male Senate Judiciary Committee, led by then-Senator Joe Biden. Her testimony, while deeply powerful, was ultimately unsuccessful in upending Thomas's nomination. He was confirmed to the Supreme Court just four days later, on October 15th of 1991. In the immediate aftermath, 
It wasn't clear what effect Hill's testimony would have, but in the years to follow, her voice has endured, reverberating through those who finally felt heard that day in October. A voice that was saying, out in public, that sexual harassment is an all-too-common feature of being a woman in the workplace, that it is real and often ignored. And while that incredulous Senate committee may not have heard her that day, it's clear that, as Anita often says, a can of worms had been opened. We talk about the Thomas hearing in great detail in this episode, along with the unnerving parallels between how Anita was treated in 1991 and how Christine Blasey Ford was treated in 2018 during the Brett Kavanaugh hearing. We also unpack Hill's history with President Joe Biden and the importance of his nomination of Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson. But most importantly, and I want to just emphasize this before we start, because, you know, Anita Hill has probably been interviewed a thousand times since 1991. And if you know this show, you know that I've read, listened, or watched about 975 of those interviews. And in most of these interviews, conducted by political reporters, there is something glaringly absent, and that is a sense of Anita Hill's humanity, of the human toll of not only what she did, but what she continues to do on behalf of victims of sexual harassment. And so, for today, our aim was to better understand her. I know that sounds simple, but it's clear the Senate Judiciary Committee she sat before did not try to do that. Many members of the press did not try to do that. The American public, in part, did not try to do that. Even now, 21 years removed, there's a very limited acknowledgement of Anita Hill's humanity. And so, in this episode, our aim was to try to understand the tumultuous and remarkable life of Anita Hill. I must say, it is a profound honor to have her on this show. I want to thank her for coming on and giving us the time she did. And I want to thank you, wherever you are, whoever you are, for being here. Now, here is Anita Hill. Um, Anita, what did you have for breakfast today? I had granola. Much uh, healthier than I would do, but I appreciate it. When you get to be 65, Sam, you might want to switch to granola. <laughs> but don't push it. Don't rush it. I feel like by the time I reach 35, I may want to switch to granola. Okay. Well, and you, you'll know when it's time. <laughs> Anita Hill, thank you for being here. It's a pleasure to be talking with you. Well, I am grateful to have this opportunity to sit with you. And, and I just want to jump right in because you have a new podcast called Getting Even with Anita Hill. What does getting even in this case mean and look like to you? Well, in this case, it means getting to equality. I mean, the podcast is all about equality and how we can get there. It goes beyond looking at inequalities, and there are plenty of those out there, and there's plenty of evidence of it. But I think in this moment, 
two years after 2020, and which was a year of reckoning and clarity on a lot of inequalities that we experience in society. Two years later, we're ready for solutions. And there are people out there with solutions, and I want them to be heard. I want them to be on my show. I want people to listen and take away a message that change is possible and that they can be a part of that change. In your first few episodes, you have this mini-series called Reimagining 1991, in which you sit with Sakari Hardinet, a witness that was never called to testify at the confirmation hearing of Clarence Thomas. You also sit with Georgetown law professor Susan De La Ross, who served on your legal team during that hearing. What has that process been like revisiting 1991 in 2022? Well, most recently, I revisited 1991 in 2018 when Christine Blasey Ford testified. And the majority of people around the country who were viewing it saw a repeat of 1991 in her testimony in the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation hearing. It's not as though I'm revisiting 1991 for the first time 30 years later. I think so often over the past 30 years, we have seen reverberations or echoes of 1991 in public processes. So in revisiting, I wanted to take people back to 1991 to think about the ways that things could have been done differently things that were obviously available for the Senate Judiciary Committee to hear, but that were never allowed into the record, including witnesses who wanted to testify, who submitted statements that were relevant to my testimony and to their own experiences. That was my way of really introducing what we should be doing now. First of all, we should be taking all of the evidence in these public hearings. We should not be excluding individuals from bringing relevant information to our public processes, especially when it comes to issues of sexual assault and sexual harassment. We should give women and any survivor or victim, their words should have the same weight as the words of the nominee And we've got to put together the processes that will make sure that things are weighed evenly. That really does kind of go to the heart of getting even. How do we even the playing field? And we've got to understand that the process is important. And if we don't pay attention to the process, we are going to repeat over and over again the same problems. Well, let's unpack some of that process in 1991. On July 1st, Clarence Thomas was nominated for the Supreme Court by then-President Bush. Political appointees typically receive an extensive FBI background check, but that did not happen between July 1st of 1991 and September 3rd of 1991. And it's that day in September when you first received contact from the staff of Senator Howard Metzenbaum, a Democrat from Ohio. As he said in a sworn statement on page 29 of the congressional record for the Senate on October 7, 1991, Anita Hill was one of three women who worked with Thomas at the EEOC who were contacted by my staff. They were asked about a range of women's issues, including rumors of sexual harassment at the agency. 
I want to emphasize and point out that Miss Hill did not make an allegation against Mr. Thomas during that September 3rd or September 4th conversation. On September 5th, Miss Ricky Seidman, a second labor aide working with then Democratic Senator Ted Kennedy, called you. As Kennedy said, again, from that Senate record I quoted from, the call was a systemic review of people who had worked with Judge Thomas, and Hill indicated that she needed time to decide whether she was willing to discuss the issue, the issue being of sexual harassment. Then, on September 9th, you leave a message on the phone of James Brudney, the chief counsel of Metzenbaum subcommittee. I want to go back to that. What were you wrestling with in those four days between September 5th and the 9th? First of all, what I was wrestling with was the way that they had framed the question. They asked not whether I had been sexually harassed. They asked if I was aware of sexual harassment. The way the question was framed, I thought that perhaps somebody else had come forward. And was I aware of that person's situation? And I was only aware of my own, but I wasn't quite sure that that's what they were asking for. And I was also grappling with the fact that these are political processes the confirmations for the Supreme Court are highly political. It sounds like, oh, it's for the Supreme Court. Everybody's concerned about the judiciary and, and the legal system. Well, some people are really concerned more about politics and political power and aligning with political power. And I was very concerned that this could possibly be one of those situations where there wasn't really any concern about sexual harassment, but there was just a chance to make political points. And I didn't want my experience to be used just for political points. In the end, I decided that I would step forward because I thought about what the process should be. And what the process is billed as is a concerted effort, including an investigation, into the character and fitness of a nominee for a position on the highest court in the country. And it's a lifetime position. So I decided that, that I did have something relevant to say about my own experience. And that if the Senate Judiciary Committee took it seriously as a process for vetting an individual's qualifications, which to me includes integrity and honesty and respect for the law, then they would take my testimony seriously. So you signed up because you had this kind of lingering hope about what the process could and should look like, knowing all well that the process was likely to fail you. Absolutely. Think about it. I'm a lawyer. I was teaching law students at the time. I teach my law students to you know, have respect for the law and to value process and to really understand that they should have an investment in making sure the systems work. And that means participating, not standing on the sidelines. That was, in part, what was driving me. Another thing that was driving me was the fact that I grew up after the Brown versus Board of Education system. I'm the youngest of 13 children. Ten of my siblings went to segregated schools. I and two of my siblings graduated from integrated schools. 
our lives, our opportunities were different because of those different experiences. So I know firsthand the importance of the court. A lot of people think of the Supreme Court, it's a remote out there. They don't understand their process. They don't understand their role, and they don't see how it affects their lives. But I had grown up believing that the court affected my life. I saw it was my responsibility, ultimately, to at least challenge the system. You know, you're talking about growing up in Oklahoma, the youngest of 13 children. You grew up with the belief that the courts can affect change, but I also know that you grew up with the belief that As your Uncle George, your mother's brother, once said, if you talk about harm done to you, those people will use it against you. I wonder how much those words lingered inside of you in that window of time before deciding to take part in the hearing. Those words are part of what we grow up with. And it's part of what my family had grown up with. You know, I was born in 1956. In 1956, segregation was legal. Schools were being desegregated, not quickly, but we didn't have a Civil Rights Act of 1964. So jobs were segregated, education was segregated. So it wasn't as though I grew up in a time where I didn't see that the law could do bad as well as to do good. But at the same time, I realized that you have to take risk for change. I grew up through the civil rights era. You know, it was happening on television, but what I saw was that people were taking risks. And for them, the risks meant marching with the risk of being beaten up by police. It meant people fighting for voting rights, trying to enroll Black people to vote in Mississippi might die. It meant taking risk, real risk. And so I knew that there was risk in my coming forward, but I had this model in the back of my head that that's what it takes if you want change. I took the risk and still held out hope that some change would come. And I believe that even though the outcomes of the hearings and the vote, that it clearly wasn't the change that I would have liked to have come. But change can come in different ways that we shouldn't necessarily measure our impact by the change that comes out of the official process. And that's a lesson from 1991, because we know that since 1991, we have seen change around the issue of sexual harassment, around the issue of sexual assault, around the issue of many forms of gender violence. We've seen people from all ways of life coming forward, people of all races, people of all genders coming forward, talking about their experiences in the Me Too movement. And I like to believe that 1991 was a part of that, but I don't want to rest on that. I want to hold that moment of risk that you took on October 11th, 1991, 11.31 a.m. You sat alone in your blue linen suit in a long table in room 325 of the Russell Senate office building and began your statement in Clarence Thomas's confirmation hearing. Mr. Chairman, Senator Thurman, members of the committee, my name is Anita F. Hill, and I am a professor of law at the University of Oklahoma. 
I was born on a farm in Okmulgee County, Oklahoma in 1956. I am the youngest of 13 children. When you hear that version of yourself at age 35, what do you hear? Let the record show that I'm looking down now because I'm actually visualizing that. Let me just describe what else was going on. Yes, I was sitting at that table and I was alone. It wasn't, though, that I was alone in the room. As I looked to my right, there was a bank of photographers ready to take a photo of any move that I made. I remember at one point doing a gesture to my face or something or pulling, picking up a glass of water and flashes, lights flashing because everyone, I assume, thought they were going to capture a moment. I remember, of course, the bank of people sitting in front of me the senators, all white, all male, most of them middle-aged or older, many of whom were entirely incredulous, some very hostile, some ambivalent. I think everyone was actually ambivalent. Nobody wanted to be there. They didn't want me to be there anyway. But I also have a memory of my family sitting behind me. And my family and friends were there. And the people who supported me had come together like magic, because they believed that I had the right to be heard. I really felt that because my family was there, because all of those people were there, that I, in fact, did have as close to a level playing field in that space as anybody could possibly get. And as long as I kept that in my head, then I was ready to proceed. You know, you mentioned some of the incredulous behavior coming from the Senate Judiciary Committee. If some of their comments were considered insensitive in 1991, they're considered horrifying in 2022. I'm thinking now specifically about Senator Howell Heflin, a Democrat from Alabama. Here he is during the confirmation hearing on October 12th of 1991. I've got to determine what your motivation might be. Are you a scorned woman? Do you have a militant attitude relative to the area of civil rights? Do you have a martyr complex? The issue of fantasy has arisen. Are you interested in writing a book? People will say, though, that he was not well understood. His line of questioning, he was trying to sort of do this you know, tactic thing to where we'll just put all of these out here. I think the real antagonism came from people like Arlen Specter, like Alan Simpson, and like Orrin Hatch. Yes, Howell Heflin, who was a Democrat from the South, didn't do me any favors in a sense, but the direct hostility really came from the really snide and snarky and the looks of disdain from those individuals. And then the worst of it was also from all of the collective decision led by Joe Biden for not bringing on extra witnesses, not including all of the information. So it was a combination of things. It wasn't just one person. It was the entire culture of the Senate And it was their lack of understanding and unwillingness to bring in experts who could inform them. It was a lack of consideration for how this hearing was impacting people around the country and around the globe. There were so many things that were wrong. 
I will tell you this story quickly. You know, I've been doing some discussions and a podcast and radio shows about a book that I wrote. And one woman who was watching the hearings in 1991 called up the radio station and said, you know, I remember 1991. She said, just hearing your voice makes me sick to the stomach now because I recall what you went through. So it was all of the above that, you know, sort of sent people into this like visceral response of what is happening here? What are our leaders doing? And can this even be possible, even in 1991? I think more people today have that feeling. We've moved since 1991 as a public. We understand that we should not have tolerated all of the innuendos, Howell Heflin's innuendos and suggestions. We are a better country for it. And that's why I think now is the time for us to move beyond just understanding the problem and being aware that it's in existence. But now we should be talking about solutions and repairing the harm that's been done. Well, I want to talk about the solution to one problem, which I think you alluded to from Senator Hatch and Senator Simpson, which is this recurring comment. If she felt unsafe in the fall of 1981 at the Department of Education, why did she go with Thomas when he went to the EEOC in April of 1982? Here's Senator Simpson, the Republican from Wyoming, pursuing the same line of questioning. If what you say this man said to you occurred, why in God's name, when he left his position of power or status or authority over you, and you left it in 1983, why in God's name would you ever speak to a man like that the rest of your life? You describe some of the psychology of this in your book, Believing. Can you speak on how that response from Thurman, Hatch, and Simpson reflects a kind of collective denial of women's experiences with abuse and how we may go about fixing that problem. Well, first of all, it suggests that the behavior is so exceptional that automatically people are going to respond and leave it. And the reality is that even today, there are people who are experiencing harassment who are continuing to live in those situations and work in those situations because they don't feel they have any other real choices. I knew that Clarence Thomas was an individual who was powerful enough to eliminate my livelihood with a single call. He could make sure that I did not have a job, and I knew that. And at the time that I went to the Department of, I left the Department of Education and went to the EEOC, some of the behavior had actually stopped. It picked up again. That part I don't even understand how it picked up again. But I do understand that I kept wanting nothing more than the behavior to stop. And I knew that leaving would be a risk because I would still have to find another job. And I knew that Leaving wouldn't necessarily mean that I would go to another job where there would be no harassment, because there is harassment at a lot of jobs. What you saw in those senators 
all very powerful men, all of them very wealthy, who have been in their power bubble for so long that they didn't understand vulnerability, that they didn't understand any kind of vulnerability, let alone the vulnerability of a young 25-year-old working in one of her very first professional jobs in a place like Washington, D.C. And I think that's a huge gap between our leadership and where the average worker is. Because I now know the rates of harassment for young people, people in that age group that I was in when I was working for Thomas. I know how high the rates are, regardless of whether they move from a job or, you know, stay. So I think what is missing, the conversation about why do women stay I think what is missing is the question of why don't our leaders understand the experiences of workers everywhere who are not as powerful as they are, who don't have the resources to bounce back, whose jobs are not as secure as theirs, leaders who can look at situations from the perspective of the people who are marginalized, or more vulnerable. We should expect that of our representation. If it were truly represented in Congress, then we would have had somebody who understood what my experience was, and they wouldn't have had to ask the questions in the way that they asked them, and maybe not even had to ask them at all. And if they did have to ask them, they should have had an expert help them understand. I'd like to better understand your experience, because as you write in your book, Believing, survivors insulate themselves with their own form of denial by adamantly rejecting the notion that they are vulnerable. They develop a thick skin to defend themselves against being labeled as snowflakes, not tough enough, oversensitive. And in some cases, that means denying that their own pain exists or that it matters. Either before, during, or after the hearing, do you think you participated in some of that insulation? Oh, absolutely I did. That feeling that I'm describing in the book doesn't come from our heads. It comes from the culture. The culture that tells us throughout our lives that what we're experiencing isn't so bad. That tells us, you know, just get over it or don't make a big deal out of it. Those are the voices that we have heard. So when we encounter these experiences, that's what comes back to us. I give this example of the things that we tell children. And there is an enormous amount of harassment of children in elementary school. And it can escalate as it moves up to high school grades, and then of course in college. But often where there is a male who is being accused of being abusive and a female who is a victim, you hear two things. One, you hear, well, boys will be boys, and that's just what boys do. So in that instance, we're telling the victim to accept bad behavior because it's inevitable. And we're telling the abuser that bad behavior is acceptable. So that's one message. The other message is that we tell young 
girls that boys behave in these kinds of abusive and sometimes violent ways because they like them. And in that sense, we're telling girls that they should welcome a certain level of aggressive and even violent attention because it's a sign of their attractiveness and that they should be submissive to it. Now, what we're also, again, telling boys is that that's the way that you show your interest. And it's an acceptable way of showing interest. And so we have to deal with this as a cultural issue. Instead of telling boys that this is, you know, okay, because, you know, you're a boy and, and they'll, you'll just grow out of it. We should be teaching more positive ways to interact with folks, that aggression is not the answer to social relationships. You know, we could talk endlessly just about what's going on in our elementary schools. If we don't understand three things, first of all, the cultural issues that allow for gender violence and aggression, we aren't understanding the systems that are in place that are supposed to be protecting people against it, but really are allowing it to happen. Systems that like what happened in 1991 and 2018 and institutions that support it, like the U.S. Senate, like the Senate Judiciary Committee, that support really and sort of house this culture in the systems. And so those are the things that we have to deal with as a society if we're going to get beyond where we are. But right now what we do is we have systems that put the entire burden of understanding the problem on the victims. And as a society, we don't take responsibility for even understanding what they're going through. And that needs to change. But I think that there are, you know, there are signs that we are changing. I mean, the response to Christine Blasey Ford was very different from the response to me. It took a while to get to the response, but the immediate response was that Brett Kavanaugh, in a majority of the population, Brett Kavanaugh should not be confirmed. That didn't happen in 1991. You know, it's a process of the society really listening and understanding and hearing from many people who have survived various forms of abuse. I think many people watched the 2018 Justice Kavanaugh hearings and felt it was eerily similar to 1991. You mentioned the cultural response had changed, but something you write in your book is that one of the things that had not changed were the structures. And if you don't change the process, you're going to continue to get the same outcomes. Now, of course, the 2018 Senate Judiciary Committee had more gender and racial diversity. And yet, in spite of that diversity, they reached the same outcome the committee reached in 1991. Why do you think we often focus on making changes in personnel over changes in process? Because it's easier. It's easier for us to believe that all this is is a behavioral issue instead of a structural issue. What does that mean? Well, it means that we don't even think about the process, for one thing. We just think that, okay, if we put better people or more sensitive people in a position to hear a case, then they'll come up with the right decision because it's just about, you know, evaluating behavior. But all the evaluations of behavior 
take place through the lens of a process. So in 2018, when we had an investigation into Christine Blasey Ford's complaint, you still had it filtered through a lens and a process. For example, the president of the United States could say, well, we don't have to call any additional witnesses. We don't have to take any into context. We are going to limit the number of people that the investigators talk to, cutting out any number of different voices that might have confirmed what she was saying or maybe even confirmed what he was saying. That is a flawed process. If the process is flawed, if you don't give people the information that they need, then it doesn't matter who the people are. They're not going to be able to necessarily change the outcome. I think what we have to do is to create structures that will prevent the kind of conflicts of interest, the power alignments that occur, not because they don't believe a a witness or because the information doesn't exist, but because it's just easier to side with the powerful people and exclude the information if it's inconsistent with what the person in power in, in 2018, that person was Donald Trump. But think about this, Sam. 1991, Senator Grassley was on the Senate Judiciary Committee. 30 years later, he was chairing the Senate Judiciary Committee. In 1991, he vowed that he would put in place a process that would prevent 1991 from happening again. (laughs) In 2018, instead of introducing that new process, he doubled down on the old one. And he did it because he could do it, because the system allowed him to do it. I think if we really want to have some assurance that this is not going to happen again, whether it's a Supreme Court nominee or some nominee for another position, if we want some insurance, we will encourage our representatives to provide a platform that is a level platform so that individuals can come forward. Right now, the balance of power is always going to be against victims. And we should not have that in our highest bodies of the government. Putting a pause on the conversation, we'll be right back with Anita Hill. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History. If you've watched a professional tennis match recently, you'll know that fans had this amazing new tool at their disposal. It was created by the consulting company Infosys and the Association of Tennis Professionals. It's an immersive 3D viewing experience for tennis fans, which allows them to watch matches from new angles, get real-time statistics, and better understand the inner workings of the game and its athletes. Basically, a completely new, data-driven way to appreciate a tennis match. It's been a huge hit, and I'm proud to say that the Infosys Tennis Platform earned first place in the Customer Experience category at the Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event held at Mobile World Congress in Las Vegas that celebrates customers who've boldly innovated for the sake of meaningful change. 
And I think it's important to point out that innovation like this doesn't just require a great idea and exploit some great underlying technology. It takes courage. Because tennis is a game with a long history and some pretty powerful traditions. I mean, you can only wear white at Wimbledon. Still, it's the 21st century. And here was an idea that said we can dramatically change the way a fan watches a match. We can feed them data. We can allow them to see things they could never see before with the naked eye, or even conventional camera angles. If you want to turn a world upside down, you have to have a pretty strong backbone. That's a lot of what the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards are all about. Finding people and companies who show that kind of boldness. I encourage you to enter. It's a fantastic event and a great way to be recognized for your brave, outside-the-box thinking in front of the industry's most influential leaders. And an even better way to say, I told you so. You can enter by July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase, NA member FDIC, 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And... How are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts. Coming back, you were talking about the time between 1991 and 2018 for Senator Grassley. But I'm curious about that time between 1991 and 2019 for Joe Biden. In 91, he was the head of the Senate Judiciary Committee. In 2019, he was weighing a presidential bid for the 2020 election. In March of 2019, you sat in a hotel room in Houston, Texas, waiting for a conversation that was nearly 28 years in the making. And then the phone rang. What happened on that call between you and Joe Biden? Well... The former vice president, Biden, introduced himself. You're being awfully polite about this. (laughs) Well, there's a certain kind of politeness that occurs. I mean, maybe it's deference to the position of a former vice president. I don't know. 
But maybe it's just my deference to being open to hear. He had been asked repeatedly by journalists when he was going to apologize. He had said that he owed me an apology. So I was open to hearing. I was approached beforehand about whether I would take a call. And I said, of course, I'll take a call. Now, keep in mind that it was almost 30 years then. And I had really worked through a lot of what I had to work through after 1991. And so I was open to hearing from him. And he did say that he was very sorry about what happened to me and that he took responsibility for what happened to me in that process. However, I still don't think he understood, or he certainly didn't articulate to me that he understood what had happened to many other people who were watching. And many of those people I had heard from since 1991. And they had told me about how much it hurt to watch those hearings and how they felt that if I couldn't break through, they would have no chance of breaking through. I had heard from people on a whole whole range of behaviors, including very early on an incest survivor who said that that Senate Judiciary Committee reminded him of his family when he had told his family about being abused by a family member and his parents rejected his complaint and sided with the abuser and how that hearing resonated with him and brought back those memories. On that phone call you mentioned, which came in the winter of 1991, he said to you, You've opened a whole can of worms. Yes, he said, I had opened a whole can of worms because up to that time, I had been thinking about sexual harassment and I had heard from many sexual harassment victims. But I started to read the letters and I realized that they weren't limited to sexual harassment victims. Even before then, when I got the call and this man said to me that he had been abused and that I had opened a whole can of worms, I realized that the experience of 1991 just wasn't my experience alone. It wasn't just harassment. It wasn't just women. It was a whole range of people. And that in that call in 2019, it just seemed as though Joe Biden didn't recognize that, that he thought it was just about me and that he hadn't absorbed the fact that people all over the country were hurt by 1991. And I found later that it wasn't just people around the country, it was people around the globe. That was what I was hoping he would understand. At that point, he was wanting to be the president of the United States. As a leader of this country, I wanted him to be able to address the harm that was done to the country. That was my big disappointment, that it did not happen that way. I accept the apology for what happened to me, But I cannot rest knowing that part of the reason that the apology was possible was because he could pretend that the rest of it didn't matter. Part of your surprise seems to come from the fact that he couldn't recognize all of those experiences, in part because you received those phone calls. Not him, you. It was a burden you carried, that he and the rest of this Judiciary Committee thrust it upon you in 1991. It was your burden suddenly. 
something they created. And I just wonder how you sit with that. Well, it should have been their burden. Yeah, it should have been their burden. It should have been their burden. And when someone who says, I'm an incest survivor, and you've opened a whole can of worms, I don't take that lightly. I still remember that conversation. I'll never forget that conversation. It puts a responsibility because it was my testimony, but it was not just my testimony. It was their response to my testimony. And that's why it should be their burden, too. And that's why I believe that Joe Biden should be responding to what happened in 1991. It's never too late to own these issues and our roles in them. And he should own his. And what that means for somebody who is a senator or a vice president is different from what it means as someone who is the president who can put in place measures, who can call cabinet members to say, we need you to put together a plan for not only how you're going to address gender violence as it exists, but how you are going to work to prevent it, especially when we're talking about the situations in elementary schools. So we are passing along a problem to a generation. And I think that every leader in this country ought to be putting together a plan for how they're going to make sure that we don't. Can I ask you just a personal question? That burden that you've carried, a can of worms that you, in fact, did not open, has it weighed you down? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, it does weigh me down. I feel like people are counting on me, but, you know, I also think it's a great privilege. Again, I go back to the era that I grew up in. And the fact that, you know, I've watched people on TV who are bearing burdens heavier than mine, at least visibly heavier, during the civil rights movement. And I think it's a great privilege to be able to, after 30 years, to still be in there trying to make it better. And so when I look at it that way, I don't focus on the burden so much as I focus on the privilege that I have and the opportunity that I have to take advantage of to move us along so that maybe it happens less or maybe it happens a lot less. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about the burden because right now I'm maybe at the end of my career and I want to focus as much time and attention as I have to making sure that no one else has to carry this burden, whether their own individual situation or the problem of society as a whole weighing on them. We've been circling that phone call with President Biden. In your book, you said, mostly Biden talked and I listened. Do you think his nomination of Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson is his way of finally listening to you? I don't know. I would like to think that that's part of it, but that's not all of it. That's not all of it. Yes, This nomination of Judge Jackson is monumental. I mean, it's historic. And I'm elated that we're going to have a different kind of representation on the court because judicial representation does matter. And I don't know what kind of judge she'll be or how she's going to show up in this space as a justice on the Supreme Court if she's confirmed. But I know that Having a perspective can change everything. And we only have to cite Bruce Bader Ginsburg. 
we have to say, Justice Sonia Sotomayor, they have changed the conversation. And sometimes in the dissent, putting in place reasoning that will move us forward in the future. That's one thing, but that's not all of it. You know, one of the things that I say, just about gender violence generally, we look at it in two ways, either as a health issue or as a criminal justice issue. Well, the issues are well beyond that. You know, the problem reflects economic issues, it reflects cultural issues, it reflects transportation, it reflects housing, it reflects education, of course. And I think we need to do a comprehensive assessment, an audit, if you will, of our government agencies and who should be in this conversation to address the part of it that affects them. Let me give you one example. 10 million people will be affected by intimate partner violence in this country. 10 million every year. A third of those people will become homeless because of that. Think about all of the ways that they're going to be affected. If they have children, their education will be affected. If they have a job, their job may be affected if they become homeless. We don't have a comprehensive plan to address even what happens after. But I also think that we need to be addressing some things in ways that will prevent the problems from happening. And we know that people are vulnerable to violence based on income, low-income people. So how do we make sure that that doesn't happen? Is it a matter of increasing income? Is it a matter of putting in the place other kinds of labor protections or other kinds of civil rights protections that really speak to the experiences of low-income people or contract workers? So I think that there is so much more to be done, but somebody has to be at the top. And that person who is at the top has to commit to making this a priority. There's so much more to be done. And it sounds like, despite everything that's happened to you, that you hold out hope that it will be done. I I do. I've seen a country move forward. I know people are ready for change. I mean, we had this moment of reckoning around inequalities in 2020, where all of these inequities were revealed through the pandemic. And one of the things that was revealed was through a spike in intimate partner violence. Well, what that says to me is not just that a pandemic causes intimate partner violence. What it says is that some people are living in situations where something could happen like a pandemic, like a lockdown, like an economic downturn that will put them at bodily risk. And so, yes, you know, we have this moment where we had the Me Too movement, where we had Black Lives Matter, where we have this cry for a different way to address inequalities. And when it comes down to it, gender violence, sexual harassment, sexual assault, in many ways comes from gender inequality. So how do we address those things? I am hopeful because I think we have come so far, and I hope that means that we're really ready to take the next step and demand real change. That hope you have today, I wonder how much of that comes from your mother. She was born in 1911 in the Jim Crow South in a country that did not recognize her right to vote. And yet, you say, in insisting that her children get an education that far exceeded the opportunities available to them at the time, she showed her belief that the world would change for the better and that her children would be prepared to enjoy the benefits. 
in thinking about your work, do you see yourself as continuing the work your mother was doing for you? I'm following in her footsteps. I'm following her model. And I'm expanding it. I don't have biological children. We were her platform. Our household was her platform. She had control over that. And she knew she couldn't control all the rest of the world, but she could give her children something that would change their lives. I feel like I have a platform that she never had to work outside of my own immediate family. I feel I have the opportunity. I feel that I have public sentiment and support with me. And so, yes, my world is different from my mother's, but the model is the same. How do we prepare people, even though we know that the opportunities aren't immediately available? We want them to be ready when the future comes and the opportunities are there. Throughout her life, she held on to hope, and you have too. No matter how frequently it has been tested, both in public and in private, it has remained in you and all of your work. Before we go, I thought perhaps we could read a poem on the subject, a piece that I know means a great deal to you. Yes, this is a poem, Dark Testament. It's verse 8, and it's a poem written by Polly Murray. Hope is a crushed stack. Between clenched fingers, hope is a bird's wing broken by a stone. Hope is a word in a tuneless ditty, a word whispered with the wind, a dream of 40 acres and a mule, a cabin of one's own, and a moment to rest, a name and place for one's children, and children's children at last. Hope is a song in a weary throat. Give me a song of hope and a world where I can sing it. Give me a song of faith and a people to believe in it. Give me a song of kindliness and a country where I can live it. Give me a song of hope and love and a brown girl's heart to hear it. What did that poem make you think of? Oh, you know, I I do focus on that song, Hope is a Song in a Weary Throat. And I don't think of myself necessarily as an optimist. When I think of that phrase alone, I think and concentrate on the song, not the weary throat, because we will get weary and there will be chances for us to rest. But as long as we have a song, we have hope. I will keep singing it. I will always remain hopeful, no matter how weary I get. Well, I thank you for that song, for all that you've done in the last 65 years of your life. I don't know where we'd be without you, but I'm very grateful to be passing through in this time with you. Thank you. That's wonderful. That gives me hope. (laughs) Anita Hill, thank you for sitting with me. It's a pleasure.
And that's our show. Special thanks to Nicole Morano and, of course, Professor Anita Hill. You can hear her new podcast, Getting Even with Anita Hill, wherever you like to listen. To learn more about Anita's work, visit our show notes at talkeasypod.com. On the site, you'll find our back catalog of over 250 episodes. If you enjoyed what you heard today, I'd recommend our talks with Margaret Atwood, Dr. Cornell West, Representative Ilhan Omar, Claudia Rankin, Gloria Steinem, Dolores Huerta, Questlove, and Roxanne Gay. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you want to send in an email or a voice memo for our upcoming mailbag episode, you can send that to mail at talkeasypod.com. That's mail at talkeasypod.com. We're looking for comments, reflections, questions, really anything you'd like us to share or hear more about on the show. If you want to support Talk Easy by purchasing one of our mugs, they come in cream or navy or our vinyl record with Fran Leibowitz, you can do so at talkeasypod.com shop. If you want to support the show in other ways, the best thing you can do is share the program with a friend. The second best thing you can do is rate this show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen. Reviewing the show on Apple or even just clicking those five stars at the top of Spotify really is a great way for new listeners to find Talk Easy. As always, the show would not be possible without our incredible team. Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janik Sabravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Today's talk was edited by Caitlin Dryden and mixed by Andrew Vastola. Music by Dylan Peck. Illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Ian Jones, Ethan Seneca, and Layla Register. Special thanks to Patrice Lee, Kaylin Ung, and Shiloh Fagan. I'd also like to thank the team at Pushkin Industries, Justin Richman, Julia Barton, John Schnars, David Glover, Heather Fain, Mia LaBelle, Eric Sandler, Maggie Taylor, Nicole Morano, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Malcolm Gladwell, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next week with a new episode. Until then, stay safe and so long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. 
Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts.